The date, March 12, 1983. The place, the Greensboro Coliseum. The event, Final Conflict. And it was the zenith of a bitter feud between the beguiling team of Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood and the hated Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Tag Team Champions, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernodal. This is a match that's been building for some time. Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood, they have chased these world championship belts and these world champions. They have been after them. They have been hot on their trail. Yes, but and who's chasing who now? You're in a cave. You have nowhere to go. How does an angle born out of desperate necessity unique to the wrestling business grow into a captivating blood feud that set a territory on fire? The answer lies within the story between four exceptional performers and the genesis of a golden era of tag team wrestling. You know, this is a lot of gold right here. A lot of gold. That means we're the best in the world. Not the best in the middle of the game, but the best in the world. That makes everybody else underdogs. Underdogs. And that's exactly what we intend to do. Make examples out of all you underdogs. We are right there, right on your can, kicking it all over this studio. And right here and now, we're standing and we're calling at you. We know you're looking in the monitors. We know you can hear us. You know that we want a piece of you and you're scared like chickens. You won't come out. We made an example of you, Jay Youngblood. Ricky Steamboat, I warned you not to mess with me. You can spin the wind. You can take the mask off the old Long Rangers, but you don't mess around with Don Canoto and Sergeant Slaughter. And I guarantee you, it is not going to stop here in the ring or in the parking lot. It may go on forever, but you're ours. You want to hurt me real bad, don't you? You want to get your hands on me, don't you? Canoodle, Slaughter, you are ours. Steamboat and Youngblood would embark on a five-month journey toward tag team gold a journey that would culminate in the glory of victory or the heartbreak of defeat that required the team to disband forever. The compelling chase would serve as a textbook example of how to build toward a new type of event, one that changed the way pro wrestling was presented to the masses forever. Wrestling with Art presents Final Conflict. My name is Barry Hess, and this is episode two of the Wrestling With Art podcast. Tag Team Wrestling is the name of the game in this episode. I'm a huge fan of tag team wrestling, always have been, and when I thought about the first tag team story I wanted to do on the show, I figured the best place to start is Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling in 1982 and 1983. Um, I the golden era of tag team wrestling. Uh, I think a lot of people do. I'm not unique in that case. Um, but much of that era was heavily influenced uh, by the story that we're going to do today between Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood chasing Sergeant Slaughter and Don Kernodal. Um, I, I love this story because it's a great representation of storytelling uh, with your back against the wall. Pro wrestling is a wild business, and it was a particularly wild business uh, in the 20th century. The sort of butterfly effect that was able to organically take place because of crazy circumstances that may have been outside the control of bookers uh, or promoters, uh, things that just the crazy wrestling business lent itself to. Uh, those circumstances often opened the door 
for some pretty crazy stories to take place in the ring, uh, and some fantastic stories as well. And the story of Final Conflict definitely would fall into the latter uh, category. So we're going to get into a little bit of history on today's show as well to set the table for the principal story. Uh, we're going to touch on the origins of tag team wrestling in America as well. Whenever we start to explore a new area of pro wrestling here on the show, I'm going to do my best to provide some background in that area. Uh, I hope it's informative. I hope it's entertaining. And as we take this journey together, we can experience the shifts in philosophy, the shifts in presentation, and so on. And I think that'll be a fun journey to take. Um, so let's get into this week's show. Remember, uh, before we start, you can follow the show on social media, facebook.com slash wrestlingwithart. You can follow me on Twitter, at uh, bfhess171. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, uh, or you can follow through our host site, Anchor. Uh, give us a rating and review. I'd love to hear your feedback. So with that said, now sit back, relax, and enjoy the story of Final Conflict. It's difficult to pinpoint the origins of tag team wrestling or when the concept was first performed. Some point to a San Francisco-based event in 1901, though no evidence of such a card has ever been found in newspaper archives, often the best resource for early 20th century results. Many historians point to a match held at Houston's City Auditorium in 1936 as the earliest definitive example on record. Decades before fabled promoter Paul Bosch controlled the NWA's Houston territory, Promoter Mars Siegel ran shows at the City Auditorium every Friday night. One such show, held on October 2, 1936, saw Tiger Dulia and Fazl Muhammad defeat Heinrich Steinborn and Whisker Savage in what was billed as a special attraction match. With rules akin to a modern tornado tag team match, both teams were allowed to compete inside the ring at the same time. Scheduled under the best of three provisions, the heel team of Dahlia and Muhammad isolated Savage and tied him into the ropes to create a two-on-one situation. The foreign heels rendered Savage unconscious and eventually took both falls against the hapless Steinborn. Sports writer Jimmy Langan made note of the unusual stipulations in a Houston Chronicle article covering the event. Langan described the match as an oddity and a freak team match. Still, word of Siegel's idea undoubtedly made its way to other promotions because not long after is when tag team matches began to trend across the country. With more matches booked, rules were refined, and the concept we now know as tag team wrestling began to take shape. Only one member of a team was allowed in the ring at a time to maintain order. A formal tag was incorporated, adding a touch of showmanship to the mix. In the 1940s, promotions across the South were the first to formally recognize tag team champions. Roy Welsh and Neil Dynamite Lay were the inaugural Eastern Tennessee champions in February of 1943. Charlie Keene and the Green Shadow were the first to hold the Northern Alabama Tag Team Championships in April of 1945. In May of 1949, Moody Palmer and Walt Sirius won a 14-team tournament to be crowned the first Western Kentucky champions. The concept really took off when territories throughout the NWA began recognizing their own champions. Emil and Joe Dusick were the first champions of the Central States Territory in 1950. 
Ben and Mike Sharp won the first title sanctioned in the Los Angeles Territory in 1951. Al and John Smith were the first tag team champions of the Florida Territory, winning the titles in March of 1954. While some titles, like in Florida, were referred to as World Championships, the NWA did not officially recognize World Tag Team Champions. Unlike the NWA World Heavyweight Championship that was defended across all territories by a traveling champion, all tag titles were strictly regional in nature. With no official NWA champions, local promoters were free to do as they pleased with the titles within their own territories. As a result, the lineage of most regional titles is incredibly difficult to piece together with absolute certainty. Titles constantly merged with other titles or changed names and affiliations for a variety of reasons. Titles also changed hands in fictitious matches or were outright abandoned for long stretches of time, only to be brought back and retconned as needed. From the time Jim Crockett first joined the National Wrestling Alliance in 1952, his territory, which spanned Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, was almost exclusively a tag team promotion. After Crockett's death in 1973, Jim Crockett Jr. took control of the family business and hired George Scott as booker. Scott shifted the primary creative focus to traditional singles matches, signing a who's who of soon-to-be influential talent from Ric Flair and Wahoo McDaniel to Roddy Piper and Jimmy Snooker. But he was also careful to preserve the tradition of tag team wrestling already established with the passionate fan base. Crockett fans had been programmed to invest in tag team wrestling, perhaps more so than any other territory in the country. Crockett Promotions recognized Johnny Long and Bill McDaniels as the promotion's first tag team champions in 1949. The titles originally known as the Southern Tag Team Championships were renamed the Atlantic Coast Tag Team Championships in 1968. Crockett-sanctioned tag titles took a number of confusing twists and turns throughout history. The promotion recognized titles from multiple territories throughout the 40s and 50s, in addition to the titles only defended in the region. Because Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling was the primary brand of Jim Crockett promotions, the titles were ultimately rebranded the Mid-Atlantic Tag Titles in October of 1973. The babyface team of Sandy Scott and Nelson Royal were the first to hold the newly named titles after defeating Gene and Ole Anderson. It's fair to point to the year 1975 as the year the Mid-Atlantic Tag Titles, the very titles up for grabs at Final Conflict, became the tag titles that mattered in the territory. The titles, officially presented as the NWA Mid-Atlantic World Tag Team Championships, though they were only defended regionally, were awarded to Gene and Ole Anderson in January of 1975. The team known as the Minnesota Wrecking Crew was said to have won a fictitious tournament held to award the vacated titles. The Wrecking Crew ran roughshod over the tag team division for the next seven years winning the titles on seven different occasions. The combined length of the team's seven title reigns totaled an impressive 977 days. In the South, the Wrecking Crew was tag team wrestling. In December of 1981, the decorated team lost the titles for the final time. In an ironic twist, the team to ultimately prevail over the Wrecking Crew was the Wrecking Crew themselves. Gene Anderson suffered a real injury that ended his in-ring career for all intents and purposes. The opportunity to begin a new era for the tag team division suddenly presented itself. It was an important creative gap to fill, arguably the most important of the territory. While the Wrecking Crew's influence over the tag team division was officially over in the ring, 
Ole Anderson's influence over the division's creative direction remained very much intact. In 1981, George Scott resigned as Mid-Atlantic's booker, and Anderson took the proverbial pencil in his stead. Faced with the task of replacing his own act, Anderson opted to break from traditional thought for something much grander in scale and presentation. On January 23, 1982, the state of the tag team division was addressed on Mid-Atlantic television. An elaborate tournament held over several months would take place across the United States, Canada, and Japan. First, a series of tournaments would take place in select cities around the world. Any team from anywhere in the world could enter as many city tournaments as they wanted, provided they paid the $1,000 entry fee. The winners of each city tournament would advance within larger regional brackets and win $25,000 in prize money as an added incentive. Winning teams would continue to advance in eastern region and western region brackets until each region had a winner. Finally, a best-of-seven series between the eastern and western regional winners would decide which team took possession of the vacated titles. It was a bold idea worthy of world championships, even if they were world titles in name only. Past president of the NWA, Eddie Graham, has just been named tournament chairman of the World uh, Tag Team Championship Tournament that's upcoming. He has just returned from Europe, where uh, you've had a very, very busy schedule indeed. <clears throat> well, Gordon, you know, of course, my long suit was always in the ring wrestling and, and not administrative. But however, this is probably one of the most exciting assignments that I've uh, had the privilege to participate in, a, uh, a worldwide tournament to truly select and establish a world tag team championship. Because uh, as you know, the notorious Andersons uh, held the title for quite a long time. And um, then one of them was injured and they missed by one day the time limit. Uh, Ole took a partner, and but he was actually one day late. And so that uh, created a situation where it necessitated a tournament. And a worldwide tournament is being formulated and underway and to a select for the first time, to my knowledge, ever a truly world-recognized tag team champions. Uh, tournaments are going to be conducted all over the world uh, with eliminations and eliminations, ultimately down to oh, probably 16 or 18 teams. And then the finals, a site will be selected somewhere along the line for the finals. And uh, Gordon, it's really exciting. I'll tell you, it's, it's like the first time I ever wrestled in Madison Square Garden. I'm, I'm really ready to get with it. Well, in other words, then uh, the finals of this tournament could be held anywhere within this viewing area. That's right, anywhere. There will be a Western Division and an Eastern Division here in the United States. And uh, like I said, I just came back from Europe, and I'm going to be going to the Orient real soon and get this thing organized. And I have some very fine committee members, and we're working diligently. And uh, it should be really a great tournament. Certainly, it's a real pleasure to have with us, of course, as I said, the past president of the NWA is a tremendous wrestler uh, over 10 years, rated in the top 10, and now, of course, a tournament chairman for the World Tag Team Championship Tournament. Such a large-scale idea required many moving parts, but Anderson was in a unique position to oversee its execution. In addition to booking Mid-Atlantic, he was also booker for Georgia Championship Wrestling. Creative control of both territories allowed him to promote a cohesive storyline in both markets. He also leveraged JCP's working relationships with Championship Wrestling from Florida, owned by Eddie Graham, Toronto-based Maple Leaf Wrestling, owned by future WWF figurehead Jack Tunney, and the territory in Knoxville, Tennessee, owned by Blackjack Mulligan. 
Partnering with other promotions allowed for valuable talent sharing and helped fill out the Eastern Region brackets, of which there were many. The Western Region, which was presented on television to be taking place primarily in Japan, was strictly storyline in nature. The first three city tournaments all took place in Mid-Atlantic-controlled cities. A tournament held in Greensboro on February 7, 1982 officially kick-started the Eastern Region proceedings amidst great fanfare. Aside from the regular Mid-Atlantic talent, the tournament also featured the teams of Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis, as well as Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito, from the AWA and WWF, respectively. The famed team of Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens also entered the tournament, making it all the way to the finals before losing to Ole Anderson and his new tag team partner, Stan Hansen. Charlotte, North Carolina played host to the next city tournament, which was won by Jack and Jerry Briscoe from the Florida Territory. The Briscoes also defeated Patterson and Stevens in the finals. In the third city tournament held in Richmond on February 26th, the Briscoes lost in the finals to the heel team of Sergeant Slaughter and Private Jim Nelson. Georgia Championship Wrestling's portion of the tournament began on February 28th at the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Anderson and Hansen won their second tournament of the Eastern Region, defeating the Briscoes in the finals. On March 1st, the action swung back to the Mid-Atlantic region. The Cumberland County Memorial Arena in Fayetteville, North Carolina, hosted a smaller four-team tournament, won by Sergeant Slaughter's young henchman, Private Nelson, and Private Don Carnoodle. As the tournament rolled into March, the lofty concept was proving to be a successful draw. Content surrounding the tournament was the centerpiece of Mid-Atlantic's weekly television, and live attendance for the tournament shows was strong. Who would make it through the arduous tournament and earn the right to hold the coveted tag team titles? It was the burning question implanted into the minds of every fan watching at home. By the end of March, six city tournaments had successfully been completed out of the eastern region, with more planned for Toronto, Georgia, Tennessee, and North Carolina to carry the angle through the summer months. In April, the winners of the kayfabed western region were announced. Mid-Atlantic fan favorite Wahoo McDaniel a newcomer to the territory, Don Morocco, were presented as the winning team from the Western Brackets. The duo was said to have won the regional final in Morocco's home state of Hawaii. With one side of the bracket finished, Anderson could showcase McDaniel and Morocco in television squash matches to raise their stock and create buzz for the match against the eventual challengers from the Eastern region. Everything was falling into place, and then everything fell apart. Tournaments in Toronto and Knoxville struggled to get off the ground. Creative differences, backstage politics, and team pairings became logistical points of contention, and events failed to materialize in a timely fashion. Additionally, tournaments in North Carolina were stalled after Anderson himself began to clash with Jim Crockett Jr. over money and creative control of the territory. Notorious for his inability to work well with others, Anderson became disinterested in seeing his bold idea through, and quickly lost control of the angle's continuity. All remaining city tournaments in the works were scrapped and never again mentioned. After weeks with no tournament updates on television, Anderson and Hansen won a haphazard Eastern Regional Final in an event held in Charlotte on May 9th. The best-of-seven series between regional winners never took place. The rift between Anderson and Crockett Jr. proved to be insurmountable, and Anderson left the territory in June of 1982. In one last parting shot to Crockett, Anderson took Hansen and the physical title belts with him to Georgia, 
where he still had a booking job. On Georgia Championship Wrestling, seen nationally on WTBS, Anderson declared himself and Hansen the winners of the whole tournament and the new World Tag Team Champions. Six months into a layered angle to crown new tag team champions, Jim Crockett Jr. found himself no closer to naming new champions than when the Wrecking Crew first vacated the titles. Making matters worse, he had lost possession of the very title belts promoted in his territory. It was an embarrassing business situation and a disappointing creative turn that negatively impacted Mid-Atlantic's television product. A deal would eventually be made and Anderson returned the physical belts to Crockett, but only after the desired effect sufficiently ruined the angle. So much of the promotion's creative presentation had been centered around the tournament, and just like that, it was as if it never happened. Three more months would pass without any mention of the tag titles on Mid-Atlantic Television. Ironically, Anderson's sabotage ultimately set in motion a series of angles that would bring the tag team division to new heights and provide one of the most compelling tag team rivalries the industry had ever seen. The new World Tag Team Champions, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnotal. That's right, you know, I was suspended, I was fine. I had nothing else to do but go and enter myself in the World Tag Team title over in Tokyo, Japan. Now, there were such great stars as Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis, the Samoans. There was Ole Anderson and Stan Hansen. There was all kinds of the greatest wrestlers in the world. And I got myself on the telephone and I said, Don Cronoval, get over here quick because we got a chance to be the world title champions. And we've got it. The world championships. We're the best in the world. There's all kinds of champions. There might be international champions. There might be guys imitating their world champions. But these are the originals. We beat the giant Bubba and Anoki. Antonio Inoki, the man who wrestled Muhammad Ali. We beat those two Japanese to the inch of their life. And my partner, not anymore, Private Kronodal, but Don Kronodal took the deciding fall with his flying cannon. Tell him about it. That's exactly right. You know, this is a lot of gold right here. A lot of gold. That means we're the best in the world. Not the best in the middle of the area, but the best in the world. That makes everybody else underdogs. Underdogs. And that's exactly what we intend to do, make examples out of all you underdogs. Right, Sergeant? All right, fans. We're going to see them in action. We're going to see how great they are. In September of 1982, Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnoodle showed up on Mid-Atlantic Television with the tag team titles draped across their shoulders. At long last, the promotion finally had tag team champions live and in the flesh. With Anderson out of the picture behind the scenes, Jim Crockett Jr. brought in Dory Funk Jr. as the territory's new booker. Funk went to work to fix the creative quagmire left in the wake of Anderson's sudden departure. Slaughter was kept off television for weeks, with the explanation that he left the territory for a mysterious trip to Japan. Private Don Kernodal was later summoned to join his boss with no details as to why. Only after they returned with the tag titles was it explained that the team won a tournament to crown new champions. Like the tournament that crowned the Wrecking Crew in 1975, it was completely fictitious. Almost one year after Slaughter first arrived in Mid-Atlantic, he was now a two-time champion, having already held the United States title from October of 1981 through May of 1982. The Sergeant Slaughter character, 
played by Bob Remus, was that of a former United States Marine who served during the Vietnam War. The gimmick took off after a successful stint in the WWF in 1980, first as a babyface, and then as a heel under the guidance of the Grand Wizard. After a lucrative feud with Pat Patterson in the spring of 1981, Slaughter moved to the Mid-Atlantic region, where he continued to play the role as a heel. The character embraced more of a drill instructor persona than that of a hardened war veteran, making it easier to be presented as a heel. Still, the idea of a U.S. serviceman character performing as a heel was no easy task. Slaughter didn't just make it work, he played it to perfection. Though Remus himself was never a drill instructor, or a marine of any kind, his look was perfect for the role. His stiff chin and furrowed eyebrows gave him the look of an eternally dissatisfied human being. When he donned the aviator sunglasses, his infamous drill instructor hat, and wrapped a whistle around his neck, the look was all but complete. Not long after his Mid-Atlantic debut, Slaughter acquired himself a recruit referred to as Private Jim Nelson. Less than a year later, a second recruit, Private Don Kernodal, entered the fold. Gaining a set of subordinates allowed Slaughter to further cultivate the drill instructor aspect of his gimmick. Nelson and Kernodal wore fatigues and were forced to stand at attention while Slaughter delivered promos. He made the young privates do push-ups on command and hollered orders at them just as a drill instructor would do. It was a creative reinforcement for the already strong character. But as powerful as the character was, the act was not solely based on heel charisma. Slaughter's in-ring capabilities were of a high caliber. He could wrestle and he could brawl. The most notable aspect of Slaughter's in-ring performance was his dreaded finishing maneuver, the Cobra Clutch. A variation of the sleeper hold, Slaughter's Cobra Clutch was among the most protected moves in wrestling. It had never been broken. Once he locked in the clutch, the match was as good as over. With so many tangible skills, Sergeant Slaughter was as close to the total package as any pro wrestler in the early 1980s. Losing the U.S. title amidst the collapse of Ole Anderson's Grand Tournament storyline was the first domino to fall in a series of events that would place Slaughter at the center of the tag team title picture. His loss to Wahoo McDaniel was the culmination of a heated feud that went back and forth for the better portion of 1981. Once the Best of Seven Tag Team Series was canceled, the Western Region winners, McDaniel and Morocco, were left with nothing to do. McDaniel recapturing the U.S. title was the perfect catalyst for an angle to break up his short-lived partnership with Don Morocco. Feeling slighted by his partner's single success, Morocco turned on McDaniel, dissolving the team and sparking a new feud over the important title. With that piece of the puzzle accounted for, Slaughter's character required important attention. After losing a high-profile feud, he would need to earn his heat back if he was to remain an important part of the roster. Making him the lead act of a heel tag team was the perfect fit. And I gotta say, they're dressed befitting the title. Here are the World Tag Team Champions, Sergeant Slaughter, Don Kernodal. That's right, we're here decked out in $300 suits, but you know, at the bottom of our heart, we like to be in that ring, but we can't find anybody to get in that ring with us. Here we are, the World Tag Team Champions, and we can't find anybody to wrestle. Last week here, our opponents didn't show up. They didn't show up, and Don had to wrestle in a single match. We're tag team champions now. We don't want single matches. And we want to throw out a challenge to any team right now. You know, we've run over every team we've wrestled, and it's a great feeling, Bob Connell, when you're in that ring and you see the greatest wrestlers across the ring, and at the end of the match, after 50 or 60 minutes of grueling wrestling, our hand gets raised. You know, 
Mr. King Don Kernodal here would like to say a few words because I have to admit he looks a little better than when Youngblood and Steamboat were dressing him. You know, I was riding in Sergeant Slaughter's chauffeur-driven limousine the other night, and I wrote a little song, and I named it, Where Have All the Great Tag Team Gone? Where have they gone? Because we can't find any competition. We're world champions, and we want the very best. World champions thrive on competition, and that's exactly what we want. Right, Sergeant Slaughter? Yes. You know why we're the world tag team champions? Because I'm an officer, and he's a gentleman. <laughs> All right. The evolution of Slaughter's relationship with his two privates was an important dynamic in the next phase of his mid-Atlantic career. At first, Nelson and Kernodal were nothing more than voiceless enhancement talents. Their presence was used only to advance Slaughter's gimmick. Slowly, however, Slaughter began to train the duo and send them into television matches to execute what he taught them. When they did well, they were rewarded. When they failed to live up to Slaughter's lofty expectations, they were punished. At 23 years old, Jim Nelson was a young and relatively inexperienced performer. A Marine-inspired crew cut made him look precisely like the standard recruit you'd expect to see in a boot camp atmosphere. Don Carnoodle was 10 years Nelson's senior, and stockier than his counterpart. He was a brute heel in training. The more television exposure they were given, the more the characters naturally progressed into meaningful roles. Eventually, Slaughter announced that the privates had reached the stage of their training where they would be allowed to learn the Cobra Clutch. Passing the secret knowledge of the devastating finishing hold told the audience Nelson and Carnoodle were officially players. They could no longer be ignored. The Privates wrestled in singles matches and together as a tag team, using Slaughter's Cobra Clutch to earn victories. By the summer of 1982, they had been fully molded into serious acts, even winning the lesser version of the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team titles on two occasions. But the power dynamic with respect to Slaughter remained consistent. He was clearly positioned as the man in charge. Nelson and Carnoodle were by no means considered equal to their ornery leader. That changed when Slaughter and Canoodle returned from Japan with the tag team titles. Canoodle was no longer referred to as a private, but simply by his name. He grew a beard and delivered promos wearing a suit or athletic gear instead of fatigues. Nelson, however, remained the third man in the pecking order. With the titles in the grasp of two heels, a credible babyface team was needed to oppose the champions. After the tournament angle took a turn for the worse, the aura around the titles themselves needed to be reinvigorated. A fresh heel team was a good start, but it was only a start. If the titles were to play a prominent role again, a strong angle with compelling babyfaces would be required. Drawing from a deep roster of talent, Dory Funk Jr. turned to Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. The duo were no strangers to tag team success, having previously held the tag titles in 1979 and 1980. After dropping the titles to Ray Stevens and Jimmy Snuka in June of 1980, the team casually split to work different angles on the card. Originally paired as an impromptu team in April of 1978, the two young performers quickly gelled and became a popular babyface act. Though they weren't champions for very long, they made a tangible connection with the audience that left plenty of opportunity for another run down the road. That opportunity presented itself in September of 1982. In the very same episode that Slaughter and Canoodle were announced as the new champions, Steamboat and Youngblood made it known that they were teaming up once again, and they wanted a crack at the titles. Steamboat and Youngblood's partnership shared a similar dynamic as Slaughter and Canoodle. Though they entered Mid-Atlantic within one year of each other, 
Steamboat was positioned as the leader of the team. He was most definitely viewed as the bigger star by the audience. Having already held both the U.S. and Mid-Atlantic television title, Steamboat was regularly positioned high on the card as a singles competitor. His credentials were equally as impressive as a tag team wrestler. Steamboat was a four-time tag team champion, having won the titles with both Paul Jones and Ric Flair prior to his two reigns with Youngblood. A good-looking young man from Hawaii, Steamboat had the look of a babyface, the wrestling skills to be taken seriously, and a fire that made it easy for fans to believe in him. Youngblood, on the other hand, was almost exclusively a lower-card talent until joining Steamboat as a tag team act. Though Hispanic, his character was portrayed as Native American, a popular character trope in the 1970s and 80s. The 28-year-old heartthrob spoke softly and lacked the lean muscle definition of Steamboat, but he was fast and fearless. Simply teaming with someone the caliber of Steamboat was enough to instantly raise his profile. Together, they competed as a cohesive team and always had each other's back. Men in the audience were intrigued by the grit and exciting wrestling style. The women in the audience fell in love with their infectious smiles and good looks. The children in the audience marveled at their high-flying tandem offense. There was something for everyone. Everything except the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team titles. But that was only a matter of time. To their adoring fans, Steamboat and Youngblood were considered the uncrowned champions, a moniker that started to gain steam on television in October of 1982. On the October 30th episode of television, Announcer Bob Cottle presented Steamboat and Youngblood with a gift from a young fan. A young boy named Tommy Peterson mailed in a hand-drawn poster of his two favorite wrestlers to the studio, under the heading, Uncrowned Tag Team Champions. Jay Youngblood, Rick Steamboat. Fellas, you know, a lot of people are calling you two now the Uncrowned World Tag Team Champions. And a fan of yours sent us in a picture to that effect right here. (laughs) Says the Uncrowned World Champions right there. What about that? This is by uh, Tommy Peterson. Man, this is really, really... This is really a personal type of a gift right here. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we get a lot of fan mail, a lot of letters, but look at somebody like yeah, this that takes yeah. the time. I guess it looks like he might be about seven Keep years the world old. Belt, right? Yeah, the world <laughs> belt. And he put right. down the uncrowned world tag team <laughs> champions. Got me over here, put a little bicep in there. Look at that. Got my red flower ladies and your yellow right, feathers now, hey, right there. Maybe now. you two guys can do look something about this uncrowned. What about that? Well, Rick? You know, everybody knows that we've been on a hot trail of uh, Sergeant Slaughter and Canoodle. Yeah, this is something really, really special. You know, Jason and I, like I said, we receive a lot of fan mail, but nothing like this where a young individual, a young fan takes time out to draw something like this. Jason, what would you... Sure. You know, that would just be appropriate for this this time, uh, a young Tommy Peterson. Yeah. Right here and now, what I just whispered yeah, to Jason. Yeah, you, we're going to yeah. give this gentleman, I'm going to give him my flowered lace. Yeah, this is for you, Tommy that. Pearson. Oh, well, you, Peterson, this is also yours, wherever you're at, brother. Yeah, what do you think of that? Isn't that something? All right. That took a lot of time, Bob. Great. Thank you very much. Tommy Pearson, we appreciate everything that you've done for us. We're going to try and get them belts. Slaughter and Canoodle initially ignored the popular challengers altogether. The heels competed in simple squash matches on television and bemoaned the lack of competition during their weekly promos. It wasn't until Cottle began referencing the uncrowned champions that the malevolent champions were forced to take notice. Little Tommy Peterson would never receive his special gifts. The Brutes got their hands on Tommy's drawing and in true heel fashion made fun of the boy's elementary art skills. 
Sergeant Slaughter put out a lit cigar over the faces of Steamboat and Youngblood and tore the poster to pieces. But they didn't stop there. They took the lay and headdress set aside earlier in the show and destroyed them as well, mocking little Tommy Peterson and his so-called uncrowned champions. The Callous Act was a clear declaration of war. Steamboat and Youngblood were officially on the champions' radar, and a confrontation in the ring was inevitable. Well, we just saw, as we said, the uncrowned World Tag Team Champions. Here are the World Tag Team Champions, Don Cronodal, Sergeant Slaughter. That's exactly right, and we demand a little respect because we've been traveling all the world over, wrestling all the great tag teams, and we get here, where are they? Where are all the great teams? Where is Steamboat? Where is Youngblood? Where is McDaniels? Where is the Briscoes? Where is Valiant? Where is everyone? We thrive on competition, and that's what we want. You tell them about Sergeant Slaughter. That's right. You know, we have our wrestling gear on the limo right in front of the studio here, and we'd be more than pleased to go out there and wrestle somebody. We'd be pleased to be in this ring on television right now in front of all you Magnus fans at wrestling and showing you our ability because we know that when we go to any arena, we are now the highest-paid athletes in this country. We are the highest-paid men in professional wrestling because we are the United, are the world tag team champions. That's what we are, and we're looking for some competition, something like uh, Ricky Steamboat right, and Jay Young. Wait a minute, Valentine. Oh, that belongs to Rick <laughs> Steamboat. That belongs to Rick Steamboat and Jay Young. Would you shut up for a minute? I just found something that the cleaning lady forgot to throw out. What is this? What is this? The uncrowned world tag team champions? You gotta be kidding That's me! That's a joke. That's a joke. That's the biggest joke I've ever seen. What an artist! Here's you know, what an artist! Right you, know, you know, Tommy uh, Peterson. You call them the uncrowned champions. You, know, you didn't do a bad job of artwork here. It looks a little bit like young blood. You know, it kind of smells like wild rice. It, it does look like Ricky Steamboat. Look at the one muscle there. And it, it does smell a little bit like coconut. Yeah, yeah. But there's one thing you did wrong. I forgot the slanted eyes right there. That's right. That's one thing you did wrong is you said the uncrowned world champions. And one thing, I don't like kids. I don't like kids anyway. And I'd like to put my cigar out in Ricky Steamboat's face and in Jay Youngblood's face and rip up this picture of theirs. And have me, give me that feather. Give me this lace. Rip up those feathers. And these are, these are for Tommy Peterson. Here you are, Tommy Peterson. Here you go, Tommy Peterson. Here's your name, Tommy Peterson. That's why we are the World Tag Team Champions. That's nothing but garbage. I hope Tommy Peterson enjoys his feathers. I hope Tommy Peterson enjoys his lace. The Anaya can't wait. Maybe this will get us a match on television. Maybe this will do it to you, young blood and steamboat. What do we have to do to get a match? I think we just proved it right there. All right, fans. Right, we'll see you next week. And until then, so long for now. Over the next several weeks, the two teams squared off in cities across the territory, laying the groundwork for the bitter feud to come. The stark contrast in style and personality facilitated a gripping chemistry that all four men worked to their advantage. Slaughter and Canoodle were brawny and ill-tempered. Steamboat and Youngblood were lean and fiery. Slaughter and Canoodle worked a methodical style. Steamboat and Youngblood worked an up-tempo style. Slaughter and Canoodle used heavy blows and tried to keep the action on the mat. Steamboat and Youngblood used crisp arm drags, quick drop kicks, and high-flying maneuvers. Slaughter and Canoodle relied on underhanded heel tactics to gain advantage, 
Steamboat and Youngblood made quick tags and used exciting double-team maneuvers to push the heels to their limit. Each night, the action swung back and forth, taking the fans on a roller coaster of emotions that kept them sharply invested in the match from start to finish. As the rivalry traveled into Virginia, Steamboat and Youngblood earned three consecutive non-title victories on November 4th in Norfolk, November 5th in Richmond, and November 7th in Roanoke. The battle then shifted to North Carolina, where the titles would be on the line. The events from a November 12th house show in Charlotte would be shown on Mid-Atlantic Television two weeks later. That night, the action swayed back and forth until Steamboat became isolated from his corner in the later stages of the match. Beaten down and on the wrong end of multiple illegal double teams, Steamboat landed a desperate suplex on Canoodle that opened the door for a hot tag. With his arm outstretched as far as he could, Youngblood received the much-needed tag and hit the ring like a man on fire. Wild chops rocked Canoodle across the ring, where he managed to tag Slaughter into the match. But Slaughter was unable to keep pace with Youngblood's speed and went crashing into the ring post after diving toward his well-rested opponent. With the champions reeling, Steamboat returned to the fight, he slammed Slaughter to the mat as Youngblood positioned himself on the ring apron and delivered a diving splash onto the prone champion back inside the ring. The referee administered a full three count and the fans in Charlotte leapt to their feet in excitement. But just prior to the pinfall, Slaughter managed to drape his leg across the bottom rope before the referee could hit three. Recognizing his mistake, the referee canceled the pinfall and the match was restarted. As Steamboat and Youngblood celebrated amidst the confusion, the frantic champion struck with a sneak attack that knocked Youngblood to the mat and Steamboat from the ring completely. Alone in the ring with both heels, Youngblood was a sitting duck. Just moments after celebrating a perceived title win, Youngblood was pounded by Slaughter and Canoodle with little chance to fight back. With Steamboat unable to help his partner, Slaughter signaled Canoodle, who quickly moved into position and draped Youngblood's limp body across his shoulders. Slaughter ascended the top turnbuckle with bad intentions. Not known for climbing the ropes, the stout drill instructor shocked everyone in the arena as he launched himself across the ring before crashing down on a completely defenseless Youngblood. The never-before-seen maneuver would be coined the Slaughter Cannon, and it proved to be the impactful secret weapon the champions hoped it would be. Youngblood was out for the count, but the heels were just getting started. Youngblood was hoisted back to his feet just long enough for Slaughter to lock in the Cobra Clutch. It was time to add insult to injury. The heinous champions didn't care about winning the match. They were more interested in sending a sharp message to the team that dared challenge them for their titles. With Youngblood in the unbreakable clutches of Slaughter's sleeper hold, Canoodle lifted his legs off the mat and the two began to pull Youngblood apart as if attempting to pull his head clean off his shoulders. Mid-Atlantic Television censored the action in the ring, claiming the attack was too brutal to be shown on the air. The last image seen by the television audience was Steamboat carrying Youngblood's lifeless body in his arms away from the ringside area. You know, here's that famous slingshot that we use. One, two, three. Three! Youngblood and myself had heard that three thump, that three count from the referee. We had thought that we had won the belts right then and there. Wait a minute. Slaughter, what, what, is the, what is the referee saying right here? What's He's he doing? He's saying that Slaughter had his foot on the rope. He couldn't stop his hand on that third count, and he didn't see it until afterwards. Ooh, and from behind, you get hit by Canoodle, and down goes the referee. I run right into the referee. Canoodle hits me from behind. 
And as Jason right there sees what's going on, he's got to get something with Slaughter. He's got to get on that man. The referee is trying to signal, I guess, at the time to continue the match. But as you can see, he's still down. Jason's trying to fight back. Slaughter's got him around the legs. Now here comes Cranoodle. Hits Jason from behind. Double teaming right then and there. You two guys really let your guard down in when you heard that, that third smack on the mat, didn't you, Rick? Well, we, we expected to have the belts around yeah. our waist right then. And just a, a moment of glitter right there. All right, and here is... Youngblood, as he's double-teamed, coming off the ropes, goes down from that double chop, and Slaughter now, and Cronoda both standing right over. Referee Tommy Young still dazed, just sitting over in that corner. Looks like he's just not able to get to his feet at this point. And here is Youngblood, just held high to the air there by Cronoda, and off Cronodle, with it. Oh. You know, before all this took place, Cronoda ran outside and posted me to get rid of me. And he did that just then. He did that just to hurt Jay Youngblood, they had a particular hold and oh, move right, right here. Now, is you cobra. See, Sarge came off the top with that right clothesline on Youngblood's neck, and then you can see that he's got the cobra hold on him right then and there, and he's trying to hurt his neck even more. Crudel gets rid of the referee. Now, right here is where the damage is being done, as you can see. Slaughter's got the cobra on Jason's neck, which is already hurt. Crudel's grabbing him by the legs there. Now, they're censoring this part right here now because of the fact of what they had done. To Jay Youngbud is not to be shown, but what I can say is that here it is after the match is over. I couldn't believe it. Youngbud's neck muscles have been ripped out. We don't know exactly how long he's going to be out, but from the last time I talked to him, maybe four weeks, maybe mm. five weeks, at least they know it's over a month. Right now I'm very concerned. I'm trying to get him in the back. I want him to be looked after. He's unconscious right near now. I don't know if anybody that was there that particular night could have seen Youngblood's face, but he was foaming through the mouth. He was even bleeding through the mouth, and I'm just trying to get him back into the locker room. And what I did is I took him straight back to the locker room, and then I took him straight to an emergency clinic. And the next day, he flew down to Texas to have his neck looked at, at a specialist down there in Texas. Now, like I said, nobody knows exactly how long it's going to take. I don't know. Youngblood doesn't know. If you were in a car accident with a neck problem, I guess a doctor would say that you're, you're looking okay. But in professional wrestling with a neck problem, you're not That's really right. sure how long it's going to take. But Youngblood has told me this, that if he's able to come back and wrestle, we're going to tag out once more. We're going to sign those contracts. We're going after those belts. Youngblood told me he's at least going to go down fighting. All right, fans, that's the story right here from Rick Steamboat. The injuries Youngblood suffered during the attack forced him off the road, effectively ending the babyface team's chances at reclaiming the titles. Slaughter and Canoodle were anything but subtle in their unapologetic television promos after the attack. Here they are, fans, the world tag team champions, Don Canoodle, Sergeant Slaughter. That's exactly right. No more pitches of uncrowned champions. No more headdresses. No more legs. And no more Jay. Tell them about it, Sarge. They took the respirator <laughs> off today on Jay. You know, Jay Youngblood, I had a flower for you. I took this flower. I was going to give it to you, but it's kind of like you now, Jay Youngblood. There's no more smell, and it's kind of wilting. It's kind of dying out. We did just like we said we were going to do. We made an example of you, Jay Youngblood. Ricky Steamboat, I warned you not to mess with me. You can spin the wind. You can take the mask off the old Long Ranger. But you don't mess around with Don Canoto and Sergeant Slaughter. There's nobody that wants to wrestle us now. No competition. We have no more competition. We got rid of Young Blood and Steamboat. We got rid of a thorn in our side. 
I can't blame anybody for not wanting to wrestle us because we worked many, many hours on the slaughter cannon off the top rope, and you saw just what it did. With the biggest threat to their titles seemingly erased from the picture, and the newly established slaughter cannon as part of their arsenal, Slaughter and Ternoodle were correct. Nobody could stop them. The heels secured victory after victory both on television and on the road. Whether it was an undercard team like Jimmy Valiant and Sweet Brown Sugar, or an uppercard attraction like Jack and Jerry Briscoe, the end result was the same. Like the wrecking crew before them, the two dominating brutes were in the midst of establishing a new standard as far as mid-Atlantic tag team wrestling was concerned. Meanwhile, speculation about the future of Youngblood's career lingered in the background. Would he have to retire because of the injury to his neck? Would Steamboat replace him and start another team, or be forced back to singles competition? On the December 18th episode of television, six weeks after the attack, the questions were answered in the form of an early Christmas present direct to the fans. As Slaughter and Knoodle prepared to begin yet another squash match, Youngblood and Steamboat stormed to the ring out of nowhere. Youngblood was back in wrestling tights as he threw wild punches at the men who tried to cripple him. The stunned champions attempted to retreat, but the babyfaces chased them, and the fight spilled into the studio. Bob Cottle watched in shock with bodies flying every which way, and pieces of the set were destroyed all around him. For the first time since winning the titles, the brutish heels were in no mood to fight. Instead, they cowered away as if they'd seen a ghost. It was a definitive statement. Youngblood was back. The team was back. And with more fire and determination than ever before. Fans, with us at ringside right now, Rick Steamboat, and it's great to welcome this young man back, Jay Youngblood. Jay? I'll tell you what, it probably fooled a lot of people, Mr. Cottle, seeing this face right here come back to the area. Mr. Slaughter, Mr. Canoodle, the present world heavyweight tag team champions. That's right, Youngblood and Steamboat are back. You put me out of wrestling for a long time. You took food off of my table. You cost me a lot of money, Slaughter, Canoodle. Whatever happened in this ring earlier, brother, and whatever happened out here is just a small sample of what's going to happen. Like I said, you almost broke my neck. You almost put me out of wrestling for good. But my friend, I guarantee you, just as sure as I'm standing here, Whatever it takes, whatever Youngblood and Steamboat have to do, we are going to get rid of you and become the new world tag team champions. You know something, Bob? I know Youngblood knows that week after week on TV, Canoodle and Slaughter have been getting out here and saying, where's Steamboat? Where's Youngblood? They're no longer around. They're not wrestling in the area anymore. We hurt Youngblood. We put them out of business. We put them out of professional wrestling, making a big name for themselves. Well, I'll tell you something, brother. We were here, right here, and now, where are you guys? Sure, we interfered a little earlier. We were right there, right on your can, kicking it all over this studio. And right here and now, we're standing, and we're calling at you. We know you're looking in the monitors. We know you can hear us. You know that we want a piece of you, and you're scared like chickens. You won't come out. We know it. Ray. Bob, there's no sense in me raising my voice because we've met our point. Canoodle, Slaughter, you are ours. And I guarantee you, it is not going to stop here in the ring or in the parking lot. It may go on forever, but you're ours. 
In three months' time, the narrative surrounding the two teams had organically escalated from a basic pro-wrestling story into a bitter blood feud. Slaughter and Canoodle's attempt to maim Youngblood served as a critical pivot point. For the determined challengers, and by extension the audience, the story shifted from a quest for championship glory into something much more personal. Simply taking the titles was no longer enough. Slaughter and Canoodle needed to pay for their sins. Don Canoodle, Sergeant Slaughter coming in. You saw him at the beginning of the program, and we saw him take off and run. And you fellows literally ran away from Rick Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Well, I see whose side you're on. That's exactly a lie. That's exactly wrong. Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canoodle don't run from anybody. We got the world best to prove it right here. You don't get these world belts from running from people. I'll tell you that right now. You know we've been on a tail-kicking campaign around here. We've been making a few examples. We made an example out of Mr. Rudd. We made a big prime example out of Jay Youngblood. And how in the world, of all the surprises in the world, I would have never guessed that he would have come back right here in this studio, how he could have came back and wrestled again. I'll never know. Well, I'll tell you one thing. We did a half job on him, I guess. There's only one thing left to do. And I'll tell you what, I got with Sergeant Slaughter just a few minutes ago. There's only one thing left for us to do, and that is to hurt both of them and put them out of wrestling permanently, once and for all. Never let them show their faces again, because there's no way they're man enough to wear this. There's no way they can wear it, and I'll guarantee you when they face us again, they're going down permanently, and they'll never be back again. Sergeant Slaughter, tell them just exactly what we have in store for them. Well, Don, all the while, I've been watching your back while you've been talking. So what you just turn around and watch, make sure they don't come out here again. You know, we didn't run from them because we were scared, like Don said. We just got out of the way because we weren't scheduled to wrestle them. We weren't geared to wrestle them. We never saw, we thought that we'd see them again. They're just like dirty laundry to us. When they're down, we kick them. We kick them when they're down. We kick them when they're up. We kick them where they sit. We kick them all around. Steamboat and Youngblood. You come out here and you say nasty things about us. You say with a vengeance in your heart, young blood, I can see it in your eyes, I can see it in your voice. You want to hurt me real bad, don't you? You want to get your hands on me, don't you? Well, you didn't tell the people how it felt to be in that cobra clutch. Did you tell them how you gasped for air, how you couldn't breathe, how the blood started going to your brain, and that was 30 more seconds if young blood 30 more seconds. The steamboat wouldn't have got you off. You wouldn't be here right now. You'd be in the morgue, my friend. You'd be in the morgue. And I don't see why we don't put you there right now. Eddie Arena! I'm talking to Eddie Arena! Right now! Right now! If you got the guts, come out here right now! With Youngblood back, the act returned to the road for a second tour across the territory the night after Christmas in Greensboro. Week after week, the teams packed arenas. Some nights the titles were on the line, other nights a chance at payback was the only thing up for grabs. The new year brought with it a new level of violence. The second time around the horn, both teams became less concerned with the titles themselves and more concerned with punishing each other as much as possible. On January 6, 1983, they fought to a double countout in Norfolk, and again the following night in Richmond. A violent no-disqualification match saw Steamboat and Youngblood victorious on January 20th in Norfolk. On January 23rd in Greensboro, 
Slaughter and Canoodle won a chaotic lumberjack match. In all, the teams would battle 19 times in January of 1983. No matter where Mid-Atlantic took the act, two things remained the same. Every match devolved into a bloody war, and Slaughter and Canoodle ultimately left the building with the tag titles. Even the most satisfying of beatdowns still left something on the table for the vengeful challengers to continue chasing. Mid-Atlantic's television played an invaluable role supplementing the story every week. The television product advanced the narrative, and the live shows worked off that narrative to create compelling matches. The symbiotic relationship between the television product and the live shows allowed the drama of Steamboat and Youngblood's chase to steadily increase without becoming stale or predictable. It was through television that an important chink in the heel's armor was finally revealed to the audience. During a match against Private Nelson, Youngblood became the first wrestler to ever break free of the Clover Clutch. As Slaughter watched in shock from the announcer's desk, Youngblood positioned himself just right to execute a leg sweep that broke the hold and stunned Nelson long enough to earn a pinfall. Once Youngblood demonstrated the ability to counter Slaughter's infamous clutch, it opened the door to a real possibility of a long-awaited title change. But breaking the Cobra clutch against Private Nelson was one thing. Doing it against Slaughter was something else entirely. Could the heroes really break Slaughter's relentless grip? Those were the questions that loomed large as the teams met with the titles on the line in Greensboro on February 5th. In a desperate attempt to maintain order, Mid-Atlantic officials assigned two referees to the important match. But even two referees proved incapable of controlling the frenzied combatants. When a steel chair found its way into the ring, Steamboat took the opportunity to smash both Slaughter and Canoodle in the skull. Then, in a most surprising turn of events, Steamboat physically assaulted one of the referees trying to regain control. The second referee was dispatched by Slaughter soon after, and the bitter adversaries continued to pummel one another until all four were a bloody mess. The locker room emptied to try to separate the teams, but neither side was willing to concede, and fists continued to fly through the mass of bodies. Unbelievable mayhem in the ring right here as all four men pounded each other. Two referees, one's already down. The bell has been they, rung. They've rung the bell. They're still going. The referee both on Slaughter's head. Another jump. Looks like all of them are lacerated. No way to stop it. The master bell has been rung. Seaboat over the top rope to the concrete floor. Out goes the referee. All law and order is gone. Something has to be done. Something has to be done about this. All four men, they show no respect. The law and order, it has to be taken. We have to take place. Something has to be done about it. Look at this. Both both Canoodles want her down. The absolute chaos that swept the arena that night was the straw that broke the camel's back in the eyes of Mid-Atlantic officials. Heavy fines were levied against both teams, and the threats of suspensions were even made. 
Something drastic would have to be done to put the issue to rest once and for all. Slaughter and Canoodle would be forced to put the titles on the line inside a cage, with no time limit and no holds barred. Whoever was left standing once the smoke cleared from the cage would be declared the champions, and the bitter feud would be considered resolved once and for all. During the contract signing for the event aptly named Final Conflict, Slaughter and Canoodle revealed an added stipulation, one that would raise the stakes beyond championship glory or even payback. If Steamboat and Youngblood failed to win the match inside the cage, they would be forced to disband as a tag team combination for life. With both parties having agreed to all stipulations, the match was signed for March 12th at the Greensboro Coliseum. It was only fitting that Greensboro played host to the finale. By March of 1983, Steamboat and Youngblood's Road of Trials traveled directly through Greensboro almost a dozen times, more so than any other city in the territory. Ladies and gentlemen, our next event of the evening is for the World's Tag Team Championship. No time limit. Anything and everything goes. If Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat do not win, they will not wrestle again as a tag team combination. Special referee for this event, appointed by the NWA, former wrestling great Sandy Scott. And now, introducing first, the challengers from Mescalera, New Mexico, weighing in at 227 pounds, seat inside the Greensboro Coliseum. Desperate fans roamed surrounding streets looking to scalp tickets. A bottleneck of vehicles off the I-85 exit brought traffic to a standstill for miles. Local authorities turned to the radio airwaves, urging anyone without a ticket to turn around and go home. Inside the arena, a palpable energy was in the air as the four men stood across the ring from one another, surrounded by the cyclone fencing that made up the steel cage. Steamboat and Youngblood knelt down in their corner, taking one last moment to process the gravity of the situation. The stakes were not lost on the heels either. Sergeant Slaughter was deep within his own thoughts as Don Carnoodle stared long and hard at his title belt, as if he'd never see it again. It had only been a few short weeks since referees, officials, and wrestlers struggled to separate the teams from tearing each other apart. But as the opening bell rang, the tone of all combatants was noticeably different. To most everyone's surprise, a traditional wrestling match broke out inside the cage. Headlocks and armbars had suddenly replaced the hard fists and steel chair blows that had come to define the rivalry. The feud, for all its twists and turns, had one more surprise to offer. Rather than a typical blow-off match, a proverbial playing of the hits, 
the performers instead offered up a curveball designed to keep the audience on their toes. In the first ten minutes, Steamboat and Youngblood operated like a well-oiled machine. They made quick tags, isolated Carnoodle from his corner, and prevented Slaughter from getting involved. The heels became frustrated as they were outworked and outmaneuvered at every turn. Steamboat and Youngblood used their speed and agility to earn multiple near falls, and forced Carnoodle to remain on defense. On the surface, the tone of the match may not have accurately reflected the intensity of the feud. The fans had been waiting months to witness Slaughter and Carnoodle receive the ultimate comeuppance, which did not necessarily require the execution of technically sound wrestling holds. But the performers strove to tell a more dynamic story, and so the match was structured as a marathon rather than a sprint. Using the energy of the audience to their advantage, Steamboat and Youngblood elicited huge reactions for the simplest of offensive moves. This type of focused structure, though puzzling if the match is viewed outside of context, beautifully harnesses the energy inside the Greensboro Coliseum that night. When Slaughter finally received a tag, he was sent into the unforgiving cage before landing a single punch. After almost luring the fans to forget about the cage entirely, its sudden reintroduction made it that much more of an effective tool. The babyfaces may have been the first to use the cage to their advantage, but Slaughter would soon follow suit. It was nearly 20 minutes into the match when the heels finally gained a solid advantage. The first act of the match proved that the heels could not defeat the heroes on merit, and so in Act 2, the heels took advantage of the violent setting to change their luck. Slaughter and Carnoodle took turns sending Youngblood into the cage and imposing their will with ferocious double-teaming. Blood began to spill from Youngblood's forehead as he became isolated and the brute heels gained momentum. With each brutal strike, the positive outcome that once appeared certain became increasingly in doubt. When Youngblood appeared to be at his most vulnerable, Slaughter moved in to apply the Cobra Clutch. Alert fans, trying to warn their disoriented hero, screamed as Slaughter moved in to apply the hold. But Youngblood still had some fight left in him. He sprung free and mule-kicked Slaughter with all his might, creating just enough separation to make the much-needed tag to Steamboat. The hot tag brought with it Act 3 of the match. Steamboat hit the ring like a man possessed and sent both Slaughter and Canoodle crashing into the cage. Blood trickled down the side of Slaughter's face after the cage ripped the skin just above one of his eyebrows. Kernodal staggered about the ring as he struggled to protect himself from Steamboat's frantic offense. With both heels incapacitated, Steamboat pumped his arms and whipped the fans into a frenzy. The time to win the titles had finally come. Steamboat measured Kernodal for one last shot and charged in for the kill. But at the last second, Slaughter crept over and pulled his partner out of the way. Steamboat sailed headfirst into the cage, and just like that, the air went out of the arena. Like so many times before, the heels had somehow escaped certain defeat. It was at this point that the brutality of the caged environment became all too clear. Slaughter and Youngblood bled from the forehead as they struggled to gain their feet in their respective corners. Carnoodle and Steamboat were face to face in the center of the ring on their knees. Bloodied and exhausted, they leaned on one another as they forced themselves to throw the strongest punches they could muster. The cage demanded a decisive winner, and the action would not stop until one team was beaten into full submission. Desperate to end the carnage, Slaughter signaled his partner from the outside and began ascending the top rope to execute the Slaughter Cannon. Carnoodle hoisted Steamboat up, but the sly hero knew it was coming and flipped off Carnoodle's back to save himself. 
Undeterred, the heels executed a double power slam to try to finish Steamboat off, but the impressive power move only earned the heels a one count before Steamboat emphatically kicked out. The fans, motivated by Steamboat's display of heart, began screaming once more as Youngblood extended his hand for a hot tag of his own. The heels did their best to isolate Steamboat, but ultimately could not prevent him from making the tag. With ample time to pull himself together, Youngblood used a second wind to hit the ring running. The blood from all four men stained the light blue canvas as Youngblood floated about the ring, landing chops between strides of his native war dance. Both teams, as if running on pure instinct alone, continued on despite the violence they had endured. The fans, showing a stamina all their own, continued to scream and shout encouragement to their wounded heroes in spite of the exhausting roller coaster of emotions. It would soon become clear that Steamboat and Youngblood had more left in the tank than the despised champions. Sensing an important turn in momentum, the crowd raised its enthusiasm to yet another level. Steamboat looked out to the crowd, signaling that he felt what the fans were feeling. An exhilarating sense of anticipation washed over the Greensboro Coliseum as the excitement of the moment lifted fans from their seats. Youngblood motioned to the crowd before he locked in the Cobra Clutch on a defenseless Kernoodle. Steamboat intercepted Slaughter and applied a sleeper hold to prevent the brawny champion from saving his partner. Kernoodle dropped to one knee, unable to free himself of the very move that had almost ended Youngblood's career. But Slaughter freed himself from Steamboat's sleeper and broke the hold in what was designed to be yet another false hope spot. This time, however, the fans weren't buying it. The excitement of the moment was too great. Nothing could convince the thousands inside the Greensboro Coliseum that the mighty challengers would fall short. The cheers remained at a fevered pitch as Steamboat draped Youngblood across Kernoodle's motionless body. Special referee Sandy Scott moved into position and counted three. They'd done it. After months of matches from Virginia to South Carolina, months of bloody battles inside and outside the ring, months of sneak attacks, dirty tactics, and violent assaults, Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood were Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Champions. In one glorious moment of pure elation, the performers in the ring and the fans in the audience became one and the same. With blood in their eyes and sweat all over their beaten bodies, Steamboat and Youngblood raised the tag titles above their heads and soaked in the adulation. For the 16,000 plus inside the Greensboro Coliseum, it was the culmination of a six month long journey for glory and retribution. The majority of fans throughout the territory unable to attend would be forced to read the results in the newspaper or wait until the results were announced on Mid-Atlantic's weekly television. In 1983, pay-per-view did not yet exist. Closed circuit television was available in select locations but it was not so readily available that fans across three states could experience Steamboat and Youngblood's courageous victory. Those who were not in attendance that night in Greensboro were forced to live vicariously through the stories of those who were. The rivalry between the two teams and the overwhelming success of Final Conflict changed that forever. Slaughter, Kernoodle, Steamboat, and Youngblood proved if the story was right and the audience was willing to invest in the characters, then pro wrestling did not have to operate within the traditional limits of the arena box office. 
fans would pay to watch the event on closed circuit just as much as they would live and in person. Jim Crockett Jr. took the lessons of Final Conflict, and from those lessons, Starcade was born less than nine months later. The compelling nature of the rivalry reignited the tag team division in the territory. It birthed two megastars and reinvented how pro wrestling on the whole was sold to the masses.